Okay, and this uh, uh, you'll find in the next few weeks there's quite a bit in this chapter about uh, eating together. They're at a they're at a meal, at a banquet type of a, at least a, a time of eating in somebody's house. Okay, one Sabbath. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from the abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Listen, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Thanks. Appreciate, please be seated. Appreciate the good uh, selection of songs that uh, relate uh, to this verse 11 nicely. Text tells us that uh, Jesus was in the home of a prominent Pharisee. And uh, and there were other uh, Pharisees there too. I get the sense it probably was a mixed type of a crowd. But in that setting, the guests at a formal dinner reclined on several couches, uh, several people per couch, and each person leaning on their left elbow. And uh, the seating arrangement was according to status. At the head of the table was a couch at the one end with other couches extending from it like the arms of a U. And uh, those important places of honor were those places nearest the head couch position. And if an important guest came late, someone might have to make room for such a prestigious person. Well, as Jesus observes, the way the guests tended to seat themselves, he is prompted to tell a parable. And so what I want us to look at this morning in, you know, in the shape of a frame or an outline, I want us first to talk about the pattern that Jesus is noticing and then we'll talk about the parable that he gave. And then finally, the point that he is making, or the principle that uh, he is making by use of the parable. 
Uh, but the pattern here that he is noticing when he, verse 7, when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table. He is watching and he is, he is noticing that uh, the people are choosing the best place for themselves. And uh, this wasn't about arriving early and finding a parking spot or getting a seat close to the front at a concert so you can hear it, or a live drama where you can see what's going on, really. This wasn't about convenience, but it was about status, image, wanting to look good. It says so very directly, they, he noticed how they would pick the place of honor at the table. That was a pattern. Pure and simple, they are competing for prominence. Uh, now, <laughs> I think it's significant, too, that this takes place in the home of a prominent Pharisee. And elsewhere, Jesus warns against one of the characteristics of the Pharisees and the uh, scribes, and uh, that is that they were doing things for people to see. Matthew 23, 5, everything they do, he says, is done for people to see. Okay? And uh, it affects the way they arrange their clothing even. Uh, they make their phylacteries wide and the tassels of their garments long. And uh, that text there goes on to talk about loving to uh, be in the place of prominence when they're at banquets and also uh, in the synagogue. In Matthew 6, in that larger passage where Jesus teaches us how to pray, the Lord's Prayer, uh, in verse 6 it says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. And uh, New RSV has, Be careful not to practice your piety. <laughs> Don't practice it just to be seen by others. He says, if you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. There were even arrangements in their culture, in their way of doing things, uh, that would help to facilitate the display of piety. The Jew Jewish people had certain assigned times in which times they were supposed to pray. And there's a note on this that I have from a, a reputable common commentary and uh, this guy says that according to Jewish custom if you were in the streets at this time it was proper to stop turn toward the temple and pray and apparently the hypocrites would plan their day so as to be in some conspicuous place when it was time to pray on busy street corners in the square they would lift their hands to God and display their devotion to all who were passing by, wanting to good look good. And as I said, maybe the, uh, we're not sure, but it almost looks like a mixed uh, group of people here too, that, uh, you know, these weren't just Pharisees, but usual people. And our Lord is taking note. He sees the pattern People maneuvering for prominence. Well, I think we're too smart for that, right? 
We don't race to sit at the head of a table at a wedding. We know better. But jockeying for place, for position, competing for one-upmanship, soliciting honor no longer happening, I could only wish. But the way we do it is far more subtle, right? We don't want to be caught in that kind of situation. And, and, and the way we do it, and sometimes it's not that subtle, okay? But sometimes it's very subtle. And I suppose the way we do it depends on our personalities. Some examples, and I'm not saying that every time someone's doing this, they're just doing it for honor, but maybe they are monopolizing the conversation. Or we compare notes to establish that, uh, well, we have the larger house or the larger salary or the most interesting history or the smartest grandchildren. I confess to that one. Or how, but it's true, right? No, won't go there. <laughs> how about this? Name dropping. Nice to be able to say that I know so-and-so and then to be able to use that person's first name when I'm talking about him, you know? And I think I've been guilty of that too. What is more serious though is unfortunately some of us even run down others so that we will feel better about ourselves talking for position. And I suspect that we've all heard what was supposed to be a testimony witnessing to God's goodness being really a bit of self-promotion here. In other words, God was using me for whatever. Subtle, subtle. Yeah, we too want provenance, prominence. And here in this setting, they were doing it by picking the places of honor. Well, that's a pattern. And as Jesus observed the pattern, it prompted him to tell a parable. And so we talk about the parable at the next point here. And as you know, parables are essentially for instances. They're true-to-life stories by which Jesus would illustrate his kingdom truths. And so this becomes a true-to-life situation that he uses to make his point. And so he goes on, and this is the parable. He says, let's say you're invited to a wedding feast. And then he says, instead of choosing the most honorable place for yourself, apparently they didn't have ushers in that setting, uh, instead of taking, you know, the best place for yourself, take a back seat. Take the lowest place. And then there's only one place where you can be moved, and that would be upward. But if you take the place of honor, then the host might have to make room for someone that's more important to you. And that would be, that would be whoops. That would be an ouchie. But, he says, if you take the lower place, then what might happen is when the host arrives and he sees you in a place that isn't really worthy of who you are, where you really belong, and then he goes and he says to you, friend, you know, move up to the front. And it says, Jesus says, then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. But what is Jesus really concerned about here? I mean, 
you know, if you don't, <laughs> if you don't remember that it's a parable, you're apt to, uh, to kind of say, is he giving a lesson here on just common courtesy or social etiquette? Or is he telling you how to avoid being embarrassed at a formal dinner? Or is he showing them some kind of strategy for gaining a little more status for themselves? It almost looks that way until you remember it's a parable. So what is he really teaching? Well, he's talking about some kingdom value here. And the principle that he is teaching is very clear. Verse 11, he says, For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's the principle that he's teaching here, that God exalts the humble and he humbles the exalted. That's a bit of a tongue twister, but it makes the point. He exalts the humble and he humbles the exalted. And it's his kingdom principle. And it is in contrast to the kingdom of this world, and especially in that setting. In that pagan world, humility was not considered a positive virtue. But uh, the idea of humility conveyed the idea of being base, of being unfit, of being shabby, of being of no account. But the Bible lifted this quality because you see throughout Scripture that God often chooses the small, the unimportant, for His plans. Humility, what is it really? Well, it's seeing yourself as the way you really are. Realistic self-appraisal, having a clear perspective of who you are, where you belong. And that means we see ourselves as lowly because in the larger scheme of things, we are lowly. And if we're humble, we accept our inadequacy, our dependence upon God, and it's okay. And uh, no need to pretend otherwise. And you know, um, when I see myself realistically and accept this realism, I also have a certain freedom. I don't have to prove anything. And if I don't have to prove anything, I don't need to demand, demand excessive attention to self and to status. And I don't have to compete with others for status or prominence. And it's the way God operates. It says that here. God exalts that which is humble. And he, um, he exalts those who humble themselves will be... Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's the law of the universe. God's law. St. Augustine said, if you ask me what is the first precept of the Christian religion, I will answer first, second, and third, humility. We don't have to agree with that, but he is certainly right in highlighting the importance of humility. We might say, well, I think love is number one, and he's entitled to his opinion that humility is number one. And there's a great deal of emphasis throughout the Bible. And just a couple of examples for now. Isaiah 66, 2. This is the one I esteem. 
He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. James 4, 6, but he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Again, a reflection of God's law, God's way of doing things. And, the, and, and, and of course, the way he's arranged salvation for us. What could be more humbling than the cross? And frankly, we are called to take up the cross. We are, we are called upon to live what is often referred to as cruciform lives, where we deny ourselves and prepare to suffer for his sake. And so uh, he's crucified in shame as a common uh, criminal, and he has arranged that my salvation comes to me by grace without personal merit. It's a gift rather than something I can deserve. That's humble, humbling. As the old favorite song expresses it so well, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in day. In thee. The way of salvation, and it's the way of significance. The way of salvation and the way of significance in God's economy. Now, there's something here that I think we need to notice and uh, not to push this important teaching in a direction that it's not intended. And so please note, it's not as if Jesus is saying that you are to put yourself down, okay? Or that you're to consider yourself a nobody. As a friend of mine many years ago said, you know, God made me and God don't make no junk. And we are made in the image of God, so it's not about that. Uh, and he's not even saying you shouldn't care about being important. See, this whole teaching seems to assume that, of course, we care about being significant. And it's good, it's right, that you, that, that you know you're significant, and you want your life to be meaningful. And so take care. You, you care about your own importance. But his, his argument here is about how you deal with it. And how in the scheme of things you deal with it. And part of that is not to deal with it at the expense of anyone else. That's, that's an important part here. As if it's a zum zero game, Right? I can exalt and promote others, and it doesn't mean that I'm any lesser just because somebody else is greater. So it's not about that. But he, he's saying, this is how you're to deal with this legitimate craving that you all feel that you are important. How do you deal with it? And here's what he says. Choose the more lowly position. Choose the lower position. And there are many texts about humility, and I think if you will look at them, you'll realize that either directly or indirectly, they call for a choice. And here's a couple that we'll refer to, 1 Peter 5.5. 5. He says, all of you, clothe yourself with humility. Huh, that sounds like a choice to me. Humility toward one another, because God, and here we go again, God opposes the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. And here it's very clear it has to do with your relationship with one another. Humble yourself toward one another. Another one is Philippians 2.3. In humility, he says, consider others better than yourself. With humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Choice. What does he mean here? Are you to lie about yourself? Are you say that, uh, I thought God made everybody equally important. Are you to say that this other person is more important? No, he's talking about a choice that we make. We are to take the position. We are to have the mindset. We are to view the other person as right now, currently, today, my responsibility. I choose to say this other person is more important than me. It's a posture, it's a way of life, a position we are to take. Look at the other person, assume this view of the other, and give priority of honor to the other as opposed to honor for yourself. Is that difficult? I think it's difficult, but it's not impossible. And I, I, I would suggest that if we learn to choose this route day by day, it becomes habit. But it's a mindset, too. It's not just doing it because I'm supposed to do it. I'm to look at the other person. Think of it, that other person, for all their flaws, they're made in the image of God. And I see something good there. In fact, I see something much better than me there, you know? Let that be a mindset. Choose to regard the other person as more important. And... I referred to it briefly, but in these two passages that I uh, referred to, 1 Peter chapter 5 and Philippians chapter 2, it's in the context of relationship with one another. Because he says there, you know, in Peter it's about toward one another. And in Philippians 2, he, in the context, he talks about being like-minded, one in spirit, one in mind. And, uh, and so it's really especially pertinent in the way that we re relate to one another within the congregation. How often do you suppose that failures in churches, divisions, splits have come about because of the absence of this? Because of pride? people at loggerheads with each other, neither party willing to give, neither individual or party, you know, this party or this party, I neither acknowledging, you know, I might be wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Hmm. And even one or two individuals can do tragic damage because of their pride and perhaps naively believing that they know best the mind of God. What presumption. And I'm sure that sometimes we are so presumptuous, but we haven't really thought it through what that really means. <laughs> but I guess that's what it amounts to. I'm the one who knows best what God really wants. I know the mind of God. Being a people of humility relates to what we're about now as a church. We continue our conversations with the gathering. 
we need to clothe ourselves in humility. They need to clothe themselves in humility. You know, I think that we all know that this posture of humility has everything to do with our love for one another. It has everything to do with good fellowship. It has everything to do with unity. But perhaps it's not as known that it also relates to the way we are light and salt in the world around us. I suggest that too often as Christians we have come across in the world as having all the answers, as having a sense of superiority. Do we really have all the answers? Maybe we know where to find the answers, but as individuals, of course not. A sense of superiority. I've been stressing of late, and it's a common thing to stress, that we are to be like Jesus Christ. We are to be like him. He is our standard. He is our North Star. And uh, I don't take that back, but I want to say there is one way in which we cannot, nor do we want to be like Jesus. And the way I'm talking about is There's no record in the Gospels of Jesus ever saying, I was wrong, or I'm sorry, or please forgive me, or I realize now that your idea is better than mine. Because our Lord was perfect and full of humility, really, the ultimate in humility, but never acknowledged that he was wrong or that he had done wrong. And so, in that sense, we have to be different in our posture in the context of the world. You see, for him it would be only authentic to not admit failure of any kind. For us it would be inauthentic to come across as if we know it all or as if we are above correction. And uh, because, as we heard this morning, about sin and regeneration, even though we've been regenerated, we still have sin in us. And part of the normal Christian lifestyle is to know that we need grace day by day. I think, uh, again, I refer to Yancey in his book, Vanishing Grace. And this is what he says. He says, ask uncommitted people to describe Christians and you'll likely hear such words as smug, exclusive, and self-righteous. And he says, the approach of admitting our errors besides being most true to the gospel of grace. Isn't that that the bottom line? We are, the difference is that, yeah, we are sinners too, but we're, we're trusting in his grace. And the gospel is about grace. He says, besides being most true to a gospel of grace, to the gospel of grace, it is also most effective at expressing who we are. Propaganda turns people off. Humbly admitting mistakes disarms. Far from claiming to have it all together, 
Christians regularly confess that we do not. We're doing that now. That's, that's, our, that's our posture. We regularly confess that we do not. True followers of Jesus distinguish themselves primarily by admitting failure and the need for help. I suggest a good approach as we look at people we've come to know and love who are not committed Christians yet is not so much that, oh, I wish they would take these nuggets that I have for them. I've got the answer for all of their life. Maybe rather we should look at what is God already doing there. This person made in the image of God, I see that something good is there. God is already there doing something. And then affirming that and building on that. Humility actually contrasts with the world's approach. And here I go back to the gospel where Jesus made that point. Remember how the brothers, James and John, they were requesting, they were clamoring for place, for a place to sit. They were clamoring, uh, wanting, requesting that they would be allowed to sit beside Jesus in the kingdom. <laughs> and in his answer, Jesus contrasted his way with the world's way, saying that you know that those who are supposed to rule over the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And so in conclusion, you want status. You want prominence. You want the place of honor. You want to be great. You want significance in my estimation, our Lord is saying, as opposed to what is esteemed in society out there. Then he says, whoever would be great among you must be the slave of all. It is the way in God's kingdom. My life is in you, Lord. My hope is in you, Lord. My strength is in you, only in you. Let's pray. Father, direct us so that we can be increasingly good representatives of you and of your gospel of grace, that we are not trusting in ourselves that we are not superior, but we are so gladly claiming your grace. And in our stumbling way, we're committed to following yourself. Father, again, we just say, would your spirit continue to speak to us where we especially need to listen. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.